You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. Let us open our Bibles together this afternoon. We turn to the prophecies of Daniel chapter 4. We begin our reading at verse 19 and ended at the end of the chapter, verse 37. Then Daniel, also called Belshazzar, was greatly perplexed for a time, and his thoughts terrified him. So the king said, Belshazzar, do not let the dream or its meaning alarm you. Belshazzar answered, My lord, if only the dream applied to your enemies and its meaning to your adversaries. The tree you saw, which grew large and strong with its top touching the sky, visible to the whole earth, with beautiful leaves and abundant fruit, providing food for all, giving shelter to the beasts of the field, and having nesting places in its branches for the birds of the air, you, O king, are that tree. You have become great and strong. Your greatness has grown until it reaches the sky, and your dominion extends to distant parts of the earth. You, O king, saw a messenger, a holy one, coming down from heaven and saying, Cut down the tree and destroy it, but leave the stump bound with iron and bronze in the grass of the field, while its roots remain in the ground. Let him be drenched with the dew of heaven, let him live like the wild animals until seven times passes by for him. This is the interpretation of King. And this is the decree the Most High has issued against my Lord, the King. You will be driven away from people and will live with the wild animals. You will eat grass like cattle and be drenched with the dew of heaven. Seven times will pass by for you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and gives them to anyone he wishes. The command to leave the stump of the tree with its roots means that your kingdom will be restored to you when you acknowledge that heaven rules. Therefore, O king, be pleased to accept my advice. Renounce your sins by doing what is right, and your wickedness by being kind to the oppressed. It may be that then your prosperity will continue. All this happened to King Nebuchadnezzar. Twelve months later, as the king was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, he said, Is not this the the great Babylon I have built as the royal residence by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty? The words were still on his lips, and a voice came from heaven. This is what is decreed for you, King Nebuchadnezzar. Your royal authority has been taken from you. You will be driven away from people and will live like the wild animals. You will eat grass like cattle. Seven times will pass by for you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and gives them to anyone he wishes. Immediately what had been said about Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled. He was driven away from people and ate grass like cattle. His body was drenched with the dew of heaven until his hair grew like 
the feathers of an eagle and his nails like the claws of a bird. At the end of that time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven and my sanity was restored. Then I praised the Most High. I honored and glorified Him who lives forever. His dominion is an eternal dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing. He does as He pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of the earth. No one can hold back His hand or say to Him, What have you done? At the same time that my sanity was restored, my honor and splendor were returned to me for the glory of my kingdom. My advisors and nobles sought me out and I was restored to my throne and became even greater than before. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt and glorify the King of heaven because everything he does is right and all his ways are just and those who walk in pride he is able to humble. I preached to you this afternoon from the word of our God as the church confesses and summarizes this in Lord's Day 48 of the Heidelberg Catechism. What is the second petition? Thy kingdom come. That is, so rule us by thy word and spirit that more and more we submit to thee. Preserve and increase thy church. Destroy the works of the devil, every power that raises itself against thee, and every conspiracy against thy holy word. Do all this until the fullness of thy kingdom comes, wherein thou shalt be all in all. Beloved congregation of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ, Lord, teach us to pray. That is how it all started. The disciples of the Lord Jesus had heard that John the Baptist made it a point to teach his followers about prayer. And now they wanted Jesus to do the same for them. And he is not opposed to their request. As a matter of fact, he immediately begins to teach them. First of all, he teaches them to begin their prayers with a proper form of address. In other words, praying should have, and praying needs, a good start. You cannot just call God anything you want. No, you need to know who he is. You need to know just who he is in relation to yourself. If you're speaking to him as a true believer then he is your father, your great and glorious father. And he is your father in heaven. This means that he is seated on high, but is also all around you, guiding you, keeping you, and blessing you. But then praying is more than a matter of simply finding the right way to begin. It also has to do with the right kind of content and substance. What should we be praying about? And here the Lord Jesus Christ tells us that the first need of prayer is the need to know who God our Father really is. 
His followers need to know who he is, what he is like, what he is capable of, what he has done, still does, and will do. They need to know all about his person and about his reputation. They need to know just how awesome he is. They need to know his great name. And they also need to know that this name is precious. It's the highest name in the universe. It deserves non-stop praise, constant adoration, all-out promotion. And that has to come especially from us, who are his adopted children. We're supposed to bring honor and tribute to his name by the words we speak and the kind of lives that we live. We're called upon to be his ambassadors, his PR people, or if you will, his greatest fans. And so God, in the hallowing of his name, is the first great need of prayer, the first great content. This is what the first petition is all about. But now what about the second petition? What is it about? It's about the kingdom. It's about the coming kingdom. And you might ask, what exactly is this? Is the Lord Jesus telling us that our God has a special interest in castles and knights and kings and armies and royalty? Does he want to be some sort of special King Arthur ruling over a new Camelot? Well, not quite. But nevertheless, by teaching us to pray, your kingdom come, Our Savior is telling us that our Father has everything to do with power, might, sovereignty, and supremacy. And indeed, He wants His rule to be recognized everywhere by everyone all the time. And He wants His kingdom to grow and to grow until it compasses and spans all of creation. The real thrust of the second petition is to see our Father recognized, obeyed, and adored for the King that He is. And beloved, you'll recognize that's no minor matter. It involves a great deal, also a great deal to explore. Yes, and therefore I'd like to preach to you this afternoon on the following theme. The second petition, bring on the kingdom. And we shall see that it starts with the believers, it involves the church, it targets the opposition, and it ends in triumphs. So the second petition, bring on the kingdom, it starts with the believers, it involves the church, it targets the opposition, and it ends in triumphs. Well, beloved, when I was growing up north of Toronto, which to my children and grandchildren was long, long ago, there was a lot of kingdom talk, kingdom meetings, and kingdom excitement. And much of this had to do with the fact that these were the days when a new organization called the Association for Reform Scientific Studies was founded 
And when Abraham Kuyper was much talked about in the Reformed immigrant community, and when many considered themselves to be the followers of the Dutch philosophers, Vollenhoven and Doyewert, even if they didn't know exactly what it was that they were teaching. And those were also the days when the most popular motto was the one coined by Abraham Kuyper that there is not a square inch of this world of which God doesn't say it's mine. And taken together, all of this fueled the idea that as Calvinists, as believers of Reformed persuasion, we could remake society and bring on the kingdom. You see, there was a lot of optimism in the air. The kingdom was surely coming and, and we, with our organizational efforts, were going to usher it in and we were going to make it happen. But of course it didn't happen. True enough, some advances were made and some good came out of all of the efforts. But after a while, the movement splintered and faltered. And today, not a lot is left of it. So what went wrong? Well, a lot of postmortems have been done. Many different causes have been cited. And, and you know, one of them can be found right here in Lord's Day 48 of the Heidelberg Catechism. For notice that our present translation divides this Lord's Day into four parts or four sub-sentences. And what's the first sentence or part all about? It's really and actually very personal. It states, So rule us by thy word and spirit, and more and more we submit to thee. Now I dare say that was something that was forgotten in those early days in Ontario. When the word kingdom was mentioned, everyone saw big. You know, that meant transforming society, reforming politics, changing business, revamping the workplace, pushing Christian education. It was all about the big stuff. The headline kind of stuff. And in the meantime, the little stuff was often forgotten. We forgot that vital lesson that Lord's Day 48 teaches, which is that the kingdom of God, for it to come, it has to come, first of all, in us. It means that personal lives need to be altered. That personal submission has to be the first order of the day. That personal service and sacrifice has to be of primary importance. Oh, and if you want to say it more differently or more historically, you might say that we forgot one of the lessons that you can learn from the ancient book of Daniel. Indeed, this Bible book can teach us a lot also when linked to the teaching of the second petition. For look for a minute at this Bible book. How does it open? 
Well, as most of you know, and surely as the children know in our midst, it opens with some very dramatic episodes. The first has to do with Daniel and his three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and them being put to the test in the Babylonian Theological College. The test, as many of you know, was about food. Which food could Daniel and his friends eat? The food of the Babylonians or the food approved by the God of Israel? And you may know that Daniel and his friends insisted on the latter. Even though it threatened their standing with the king, they were willing to risk everything. And then we ask ourselves, were they willing to risk everything just for the sake of some food? Well, in reality, the matter went a lot deeper. Fundamentally, it was a matter of submission. Who do we obey? Nebuchadnezzar or God? And Daniel and his friends chose personally for God. And of course, that was not the only test. Later on, there was another that had to do with a fiery furnace. They started with that huge image of more than 30 meters built on the plain of Dura, and everyone was ordered to bow down and worship it or else be thrown into the fiery furnace. And dutifully, everyone bowed. They all bowed, except Daniel's three friends. They remained standing. They refused to fall down and worship the image. And why was that? Typical Jewish stubbornness, an inability to understand the Babylonian language, or were they hard of hearing? Now, beloved, to them, it was another test of their obedience. Do we submit to Nebuchadnezzar or to God? And they said to the king, imagine this, we want you to know, king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. They chose for God again. And the result, well, they suffered the consequences. As you know, the king was furious with them. He gave instructions that the furnace was to be heated seven times hotter than normal. And the three friends were thrown into the furnace. But did they fry? No, miraculously, God protected them. Fire did not harm their flesh. It didn't even singe one hair on their heads. And neither did it scorch their clothes or stink up their bodies. And so there you have two tests. But there's also a third. It happens under a different king called Darius. He too was convinced to issue a decree. And the decree was that no one is allowed to pray to any other gods for 30 days except to King Darius. 
In his vanity, the king agreed with the decree and signed the proclamation. Yes, it was issued. But we're told that Daniel did not obey it. He went about his daily routine as usual. Three times a day he prayed to God and he kept it up. And as always, he left the window of his apartment open. And what happened? Well, you know as well as I. He was caught in the act of praying. He was dragged off to the king. He was duly sentenced and thrown into the den of lions. And again, we might ask ourselves, why did Daniel not bend a little? Why didn't he just stop praying to God for 30 days and pretend to be praying to King Darius? And why didn't he pray less frequently? And why didn't he do so in secret? Was it a case of extreme Jewish pride? Was it arrogance, they won't dare convict me? Or was it ignorance, I never heard the decree? No, beloved, it was a conscious, deliberate act of obedience. Daniel was committed to praying to only one God. And that was the God of Israel. No one else. Not ever. Not even for a moment. You see, to him, submission was everything. Yes, beloved, and all of this should drive home to us the awareness that the first thing that the second petition requires of us, of you and I, is not constructing huge edifices, but rather personal obedience and personal submission. For the kingdom to come, each of us needs to hear the voice of God and to heed the voice of God. And that applies to all of life. You obey God first and foremost. When he tells you to honor your parents, and all who are in authority over you, you do it. When he tells you not to enter into courtship with unbelievers, you do it. When he tells you to live pure and undefiled lives, then you do it. Submission to God. That's the first thing that the kingdom is all about. And then not man-made submission, but a submission that comes, the catechism reminds us, through the instruments of God's word and spirit. The word spells it all out. The spirit makes it happen. And in the end, God is praised. And the kingdom comes closer. But then, beloved, the coming of the kingdom also involves more than simply you and I. It also has to do, as the catechism says, with the church or with the people of God. And what is the task of the church with respect to the coming of the kingdom of God? Well, the first task of the church is to preserve itself. 
And this means that it needs to live a life that is centered on God, attentive to His Word, and valiant for the truth. After all, the church, says the Apostle Paul, is the pillar, the bulwark, the bastion, if you will, of the truth. And when everything else in the world goes to pieces, when all and everyone is into the art of compromise and capitulation, when many are running after false gods and stupid philosophies, then the church has to be bold and prophetic. It has to be willing to speak up, to stand its ground, to be resolute and firm. And think in that regard, beloved, of Daniel again. Daniel is an interpreter of dreams, among other things. And you might think that's nice. But you know, being an interpreter of dreams can be a dangerous business. It becomes so especially when the dreams that you have to interpret are rather unfavorable or disastrous. And isn't that the case in Daniel chapter 4? The king, Nebuchadnezzar, has had a really, really terrible dream. Only he doesn't know what it means. He calls in Daniel. And Daniel knows. He knows, but as you can read, he doesn't really want to know. How do you tell the king that he's going to go mad? That he's going to be driven out of his palace? That he's going to be living with the animals? That he's going to be eating the grass of the ground? And that he's going to have on him the dew of heaven? You think here is a dream that Daniel should plead ignorance about, or otherwise he should fudge it. Or maybe even he should lie about it. Daniel doesn't do any of that. He tells the truth. He sticks to it no matter what. And Daniel, you see, mirrors the task and the calling of the church, if you will, which is never to compromise or to deny the Word of God. But that's not the only task. The church also has another task, and that's about increase. The church needs to add to its numbers. It needs to expand. It needs to grow. It needs to testify. And how does it do that? One of the basic answers is by word and by deed. The church increases when the word is spread and the word is lived. And again, you can find that as well in the book of Daniel. As a matter of fact, we find it there time and time again. Boldly and fearlessly, Daniel and his friends spread the word and the reputation of the church grows. To Nebuchadnezzar and his court, Daniel says, There is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. 
To the same king, the three friends testify before they are thrown into the furnace. The God we serve is able to save us and rescue us. And to Nebuchadnezzar again, Daniel says, Therefore, O king, be pleased to accept my advice. Renounce your sins by doing what is right and your wickedness by being kind to the oppressed. And to Belshazzar, later on, Daniel says, You have not humbled yourself. Your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. You see, beloved, valiantly and forcefully, Daniel and his friends proclaim the truth. And so if you ask, why did God cause the book of Daniel to be written? Why did God preserve all of these incidents and all of these prophecies? Why did God put it in the scriptures? And surely the answer is, it is in order that his people then as well as his people today might take courage and might be steadfast and immovable when it comes to spreading the truth of the gospel. The church needs to be a beacon of hope and salvation and light to the world. And when the church is such a beacon, it will grow. It will bring on the kingdom. We see it in the history of the church. We see it in the history of the world. We see it in so many places in the world today. When the word of God is unleashed, when the mouths of the saints are open. And the church grows and the kingdom advances. But then, beloved, for the kingdom to come, one more thing is required. True, the citizens of the kingdom must submit and the church must be healthy. But also the opposition needs to be routed. The devil and all of his allies and henchmen must be destroyed. And you know, this too is something that you find in the book of Daniel. When those food laws are made mandatory, when the golden image is set up on the plain of Dura, when the fiery furnace is erected, when the lion's den is created, what are all those things but satanic Attacks. Here we have the devil pulling out all the stops. Here we have him using every power at his disposal and inventing every new conspiracy. But the one thing he doesn't want to see happen is for the kingdom to continue, much less to grow and increase. He doesn't want it to come, for he knows that if it comes, his end is sure. So does he succeed? 
Do all of his tricks and all of his schemes work? You know, sometimes when you see what is happening in the world, when you listen to the nightly news broadcasts or read your newspapers, then you think Satan is alive and well and thriving on planet Earth. So is our future a satanic one? Scripture says that's an illusion. The truth is otherwise. For listen, what does Nebuchadnezzar say ultimately about Daniel's God? He says at the end of chapter 2, Surely your God is God of gods and Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries. But he forgets. And later on, he's forced to make fundamentally the same kind of confession. Read the end of chapter 3. His dominion is an eternal dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. And it's not just Nebuchadnezzar. What does King Darius say about Daniel's God? For he is the living God. And he endures forever. His kingdom will not be destroyed. His dominion will never end. Do you hear that? Those are the confessions of proud, powerful, heathen kings. And from their mouths, we hear the praise of Daniel's God... And we hear about the greatness of the kingdom of God. And such praise, beloved, is prophetic. It's a proof and a testimony to the fact that nothing and no one is able to stop the coming of the kingdom of God. It will come in spite of what Satan and evil men do because God wills it. It will come through the prayers, the Lord Jesus says, especially through the prayers of the saints. It will come. And the great King Jesus Christ will bring it. And so, beloved, keep on praying. Keep on expecting. Keep on looking forward. One day, the kingdom of God will come in all of its power, majesty, and glory. And today already we should live in hope and expectation. We should live and work and testify like Daniel. At the end of the book of Daniel, one reads, At that time, Michael, the great prince who protects your people, will arise. There will be a time of distress such as has not happened from the beginning of nations until then. But at that time, your people, everyone whose name is found written in the book, will be delivered. Multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake. 
some to everlasting life, others to shame and everlasting contempt. And those who are wise will shine like the brightness of the heavens, and those who lead many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. How great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an eternal kingdom. His dominion endures from generation to generation. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.